this week in sparkling water. My name is Iwakim Eriksson and I'm the host of This Week in Sparkling Water. I'm debating whether or not to start over. What's happening? Why is my heart feeling like this? Let's not start over. So the thing here is that I'm in a new place. And just being in a new place is making me very anxious. I'm no longer... I've been recording the podcast from the attic, and I'm no longer in the attic. I'm now in the garage, <laughs> which seems like a very benign change, you know? It's just... <sighs> I'm just in the garage instead of being in the attic. And uh, for some reason, I feel terrified right now. Also, the audio quality cannot possibly be very good right now because, I don't know, I just feel like you hear the traffic, but, but, um, yeah, I don't know. It's like the podcast is a little bit, you know, exhibit, exhibitionistic, you could say, or oversharing or, or whatever word you want to use that has negative connotation or it's like a form of self therapy that, really includes one a prerequisite for it is that I feel safe and I don't feel very safe right now just because I'm in a new place it's weird um yeah so here's something I was thinking about this week um I've talked about this before how we have this idea that there's something called free will. And then maybe scientists walk into the conversation and say that we really don't have free will. And there's a lot of reasons on a lot of different levels, psychologically and physics and socioeconomic things. Like there's a lot of different lenses you can look at it through and be like, you don't really have free will. There's a lot of different ways you can say that free will is an illusion. And then the thing I think is interesting is that when you do a bit of meditation, there's a, there's quite simple exercises you can do where you can notice that all of that is ridiculous because this, because the, the premise of that whole conversation is that it feels like we have free will. Like we walk around and we feel like we are someone and we feel like we make decisions. So it feels experientially, subjectively, it just feels like we have free will. But then, and I've talked about this before, it just with very simple meditation exercises of just sitting and emptying your mind a tiny bit and then just sitting and waiting for the next thought. Just sit with an empty mind and sit and wait for the next thought. As you observe how that next thought appears in your mind, if you do that for a while, you can quite quickly and quite easily notice that you don't control where that came from, the next thought. You don't know where it came from. And that thought is now what your mind is doing. You have an idea, you have a thought, you have a, you know, it's a thing that leads to an action. And it's like the whole idea that that action came because you chose it. It's, it's very flawed and you can really observe how flawed it is by just uh, observing how these thoughts just appear in your mind and you have no control over it. So that leads to this like reaction to the reaction where you can say that the illusion of free will is an illusion. You know, you start out feeling like you have free will and then there's a lot of people saying that free will is an illusion. And then you can say that the illusion of free will is an illusion. So that's something I've talked about before that I think is, I just think it's very interesting to observe in your mind. But then this week I went to this, um, I went to an AA meeting and, 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 um, all these people were kind of talking about some Christian shit that I wasn't really vibing with so much. But then there was this one guy who chimed in and, and everyone was talking about their higher power and how we understand our higher power and stuff. And then this guy starts talking and he doesn't really fit in. 
because he, he speaks more in a scientific language than in a Christian language. And he very early in what he was saying, he, he said, like most things in my life, I need proof. Which already is like, that's not the language of the Christians. You know, proof is a little bit vulgar in the eardrum of the Christian. And then he said he had this long thing. He was talking about gravity, and he was like, well, the way I see it, the sister of my higher power, a sibling of my higher power is gravity. Gravity just seems related to God because it's this thing that, you know, I know it's there and I believe in it, but I can't see it. And there are these things where I can feel it and we can observe these indirect things from it. And it's just this all-consuming power that flows through everything. You know, like we're talking about the Force in Star Wars or something. And I thought that was nice. It's just, an, it just sounded nice and I liked it because no one had ever presented me with that idea before. It's pretty basic and straightforward or whatever, but it was nice. It's like it's intrinsic to nature. I just, uh, I actually, I just really enjoy when people, when it gets to Christianity in a meeting, I really enjoy how some people um, will just wander into that and, and make a point out of, uh, Growing the tent, making the tent bigger, making it so that everyone feels welcome. My old sponsor in Seattle, he would always, he would do that. He was, he had found his way into believing in God, but he could still remember his first meeting when he didn't believe in God and how he didn't want, how he would sometimes feel alienated in the beginning when people were too Christian-y about shit. So, so whenever people got kind of Christian-y and there were newcomers, he would always um, make it a point to de-Christianify de the meeting a little bit and talk about some some stuff about how there's a way to be an atheist and, and, and believe in the model of AA. But then this guy in the meeting this week, he said this thing where he was like, <clears throat> he's talking about gravity. He's talking about like, how can he prove that there's a God and there's a higher power? And how does he believe in that there's something bigger than himself, something in the universe that's more powerful than him? And how does he stay sober using these ideas and everything? And then he said this thing where he goes, I don't know what I'm going to say next. So, so it must be God. And I thought that was so fucking nice because it plays into what I was saying earlier about how you can sit and observe your mind and just empty your mind and then a, a thought will just appear in your mind eventually. And you don't know where that thought came from. And he's like, I don't know what I'm going to say next, so it must be God. It's also kind of a funny thing for someone who's rambling to say <laughs> because it's like you're rambling and you're just saying these things that don't – like you sprinkle in a bunch of non sequiturs. You know, imagine Kanye West, someone who has a little bit of a Kanye West vibe, who's just kind of rambling. The noise of the traffic. But but it's funny for someone who's rambling to blame God and be like, look, God is putting all these thoughts in my brain. But outside of it being funny in a way like that, it's also just, it res it's true. It, it resonates with me as a thing that's just actually true because it's it's that thing. Like you can sit and look at your, you can sit and just observe the nature of your own consciousness and how what you really are isn't so much an observer in the middle of the space looking out at something. What you are is that you are the space. You are the space where these things appear. And everything is just an appearance in consciousness and, and all your thoughts and your visual field and everything is part of this one thing, which is your consciousness where all your thoughts and feelings and all your body experiences and everything you hear and everything you feel touch wise and smells and the visual field, everything is in this one space and you can sit and you can just sort of empty the thought part of it. There's not. It's also wrong to say that there's a thought part because there's not discrete, par discrete parts to it. It's all one thing. But you can sit and you can have no thoughts and then you can notice that there will be a new thought 
when you try to not think, there will still be a new thought. And you don't know where that thought came from. So it's very nice to think that that thought came from somewhere else, or not somewhere else, somewhere inside of you, but that maybe that thing where it came from is God. And in a way, I mean, I'm the biggest atheist you ever met, but in a way, that's like the most convincing proof of God that I've ever been confronted with, that's ever been presented to me. Because it's really like, it is like a truly mysterious and undeniable thing. And then it gets into really semantics of like, that really does not prove like a Old Testament style biblical God, but it proves some sort of mysterious thing. Yeah. But really what it feels like <clears throat> when you think about it like that is like that it's almost like what we, our experience of stuff is, is an experience of, it's like we're in a river and we're midway down. We're down, we're halfway down the river and thoughts and stuff just flow down from upstream, upriver. And we are not really aware of where the water is coming from. We're just standing in this one spot mid-river, halfway down, and things come down from somewhere above us, and thoughts enter into the space halfway down the river where we are, and once the thought has entered you, you that's where there's a true sense of, like that's where there's a sturdier sense of free will, because once the thought has been has entered your mind, you feel like you can choose to pick up, pick the, pick the thought up or not. Like once ideas have entered your mind, you can sort of like choose to act on the idea or choose not to. And that's where the experiential thing of it gets more interesting and stuff. But, but, um, but it feels like a proof of God because the things that flow down from upstream, they are so powerful and mysterious because they feel like they are us. They come from outside of us and they enter into us. And then they feel like, if you're not careful, the thoughts and feelings in your mind, you will identify with them. Like there's sadness in your mind and you will feel sad. Like you will feel like you are that sadness. You will say, I am sad. And then through like, deep, deep meditation practice, you can be completely clinically depressed and you can still just take a step back and notice that <clears throat> the entire landscape and the space of what your consciousness is, the fact that there's sadness all throughout that landscape does not mean that you are sad. It just means that there is sadness in your consciousness and you can fall back and just observe it all. And you can notice how these are just appearances in consciousness. They are not you. You don't have to identify with thought. You don't have to identify with feeling. But like it, comes, it does not come natural to you. And the fact that, the fact that these concepts and thoughts and feelings and like precepts that float down from upriver that just come to us, the fact that the, the, what makes them so holy and godlike is that they, they flow into us and they just... <clears throat> convince us immediately that they are us, which is such a strange and mysterious quality to them, which is why I feel like it's just such a, <clears throat> it really implies something supernatural, something superstitious, <clears throat> or like it, at least it really says something uh, fundamental about the quality and, and like makeup of consciousness and how fucking counterintuitive and strange consciousness is. Because we take it for granted that there's this thing where thoughts appear and we immediately just feel like they are our thoughts that we think, that we identify with, that are part of our identity. I mean, yeah. Maybe you're not, maybe you're not like that, you know, maybe you don't, maybe it's not true that everyone immediately identifies with thought, you know, maybe there's some, maybe the Asians, maybe some of the Asians come pre-enlightened. They're just born plug-and-play enlightenment. They just sit under the olive tree immediately at peace, and they can just watch their thoughts flow through their mind and immediately know that they don't need to identify with those thoughts. And then you can ask, like, why, why did I just say that racist-ass thing, you know? 
why why are the thoughts that come to me from upriver such racist ass precepts <clears throat> you know why is uh, why is the god that gives me all these thoughts why is he so fucking racist um yeah i mean you could also yeah, I mean, it's just, maybe they just come from the subconscious, but that's also not, that's not the model that the modern, you know, that's not the model that Freud gave us. The point of what Freud was saying was not that the subconscious is where everything comes from. I don't know, I just thought that was interesting. I don't know what I'm going to say next, so it must be God. You know, downriver is all of our actions. Upriver is where God comes up with thoughts and then they float downriver to this halfway down the river, which is where we are, where we have control of the stuff and we can, we can't really make things flow upriver, but we can sort of shuttle them. We can sort of, um, shift them side to side a little bit and move laterally and manipulate them a little bit in the sort of flow of where we're at in the river and then down rivers where our bodies will stand up and do something, you know? Like you sit with a totally empty mind and then suddenly a thought will enter your mind that you need to scratch your nose and then you can choose to scratch your nose or not, you know? And that's it. That's all there is to it. Let's do a water. Let's do another liquid death. So this one is called severed lime, which is a pun, like severed limb. What was the one last week? Bury me alive. It's berry flavored and this one is lime flavored. The third one, which I don't understand the pun, but maybe by the time I record that one, I'll understand the pun. The third flavor of liquid death is called mango chainsaw. Like, how is that a, how's that a pun? Ooh, this one smells just limey. Lime, lime is so, Yeah, you know, this is actually, wow, lime is bad sometimes, but but lime done well in the old waters, the old waters of Sweden. Lime done well by Romlas and Luca, that's very good. Oh, God. I always talk about how I have a really bad relationship with the people over at Liquid Death, but that's delicious. That's a 10 out of 10. And I don't want to give it a 10, but I have to. I owe it to the sparkling community, to be honest. 20 calories per can. Oh, it's got a agave nectar. It's got that touch of nectar in there. That's part of why it's so good. Yeah, I don't know what else is going on. I do not feel safe in this garage. It's weird. There's like a wind sort of tugging at the whole building, and these the whole wooden structure is just creaking. I don't know. I don't think I'll be recording any more episodes in this garage. I don't feel good about it. So here's the thing. Uh, Holbrook, Holbrook Hotel where I work, it's, um, haunted. Okay? People say it's haunted. Now, my mom believes in that kind of stuff. <clears throat> she, um, she loves the television show Long Island Medium, which something I think is funny about that show is that it's very famous in Sweden and in America. I've never heard of it. It's a sort of big in Japan kind of thing. Sometimes you have an American band and they're big in Japan. They're from Minnesota and no one in Minnesota has heard of them. But they're big in Japan. And um, what was I saying? How did I get to that? 
Anyway, I do appreciate... I do try to make the best out of things. That's sort of what my 30s is about, you know? Like, I don't believe in God, but people talk about God all the time, and instead of just being bored the way I used to be, and instead of just being bored, instead of just being angry about it and just being annoyed, I tried to just make the best of it, and I just tried to just find some way to think about it in a way that's interesting to me. And so that's what I'm doing with these ghosts. Like, I work in a haunted hotel, and old ladies are always telling me, like, yeah, back in the 80s, I was staying here, and there was a bottle on the dresser, and I turned around, and the bottle just flew across the room and just shattered against the wall, and and it was the ghost. Some lady was telling me how she went downstairs, and a lot of people say that the, most of the stories are centered around the elevator shaft downstairs, and maybe the machine room connected to the elevator shaft and maybe the downstairs in general. But so some lady was telling me how she walked downstairs and uh, she was in the bathroom downstairs and suddenly along her spine, she feels how the temperature just drops 25 degrees and it's just cold. There's just this coldness that passes against her back under her clothing and she's like, I don't know what that was, but it was some sort of apparition. And it was ice cold, and it passed against me. And I felt it against my skin. And it's like, lady, don't you understand that there are different temperatures in the world? Like, what are you talking about? Like, it's you're in a stone cellar. Like, you're in a... Oh. Nah, it's a ghost. But anyway, so... Here's what happened, okay? <laughs> this is so good. Me and Doug from two weeks ago, Doug Huntington, me and Doug were in the office. And um, Chef, Chef Zach, he comes into the office and he looks spooked. And he's got this deep, deep, smoky voice. And I asked him once, like, how did you get such a deep fucking voice? And he goes, cigarettes. That's not right. That That wasn't a good. Zach's voice is deep in a in a handsome way. And my impersonation of him there was more like lung cancer um, voice box kind of deep. And that's not it. His voice is just deep. And I don't have a deep voice. I have more of a Morty from Rick and Morty kind of voice. <laughs> I heard this, this one time I heard this guy talk about how this guy was doing an impersonation of Morty on Rick and Morty, and he was talking about how Morty's voice is actually deep and high at the same time, which is like maybe how teenagers sound, which is like there's a deepness to it, but it's also up here. It's up here, but it's also got this deepness, and it's really going between the two really quickly. Okay, Grandpa, I don't know about this Rick. And it's funny because that whole Brooke the bartender, Joey, he sounds exactly like uh, Morty. So sometimes when, <laughs> when he gets stressed out, he sounds exactly like that. And then I, and then I just will respond to him. Whatever he said, I just respond with a Rick thing. And I'm just like, shut up, Morty. Just get in the spaceship and we're going back to Earth. But anyway, so Zach comes into the office and me and Doug are in there. And, and he looks spooked. And he seems stressed and he goes, I think someone is stuck in a bathroom somewhere is what he tells us. And he seems like he's not joking. And he's like, yeah, someone called. Because apparently when you call the whole brook, you can pick, you get some numbers and you can decide where you want to go. And you can be, you can call the front desk. You can be patched through to the front desk of the hotel or the host stand of the restaurant or there, or you can, I don't know what it says, but it's something like, or if you want to talk to chef and you can patch yourself through to the kitchen. So apparently we had 10 missed calls at the hotel front desk and 10 missed calls at the host stand. And then they'd been calling the kitchen 10 times too and left all these voicemails in the kitchen. So he's like, someone is stuck in a now I don't know how to sequence this story. I don't know which part of this to say next. But he's like, <laughs> he's like, someone is stuck in a bathroom somewhere. 
So we immediately just go to, I just go to the bathroom. There's a downstairs one and upstairs one, and I check all of them, and there's no one in the bathroom. But then we realize that, oh, every hotel room has a bathroom. So, oh, it has to be that they're stuck in a hotel bathroom. And so I'm like, so what do they say? What bathroom do they say that they're in? And he's like, I don't know. They don't say, listen to the voicemail. I don't know what they're saying. They're just, they sound very freaked out. So this is the voicemail, okay? You have no new messages and four old messages. Press star to play. Press nine for... Press zero for next message. I'm stuck in a bathroom! I need help! Press zero for next message. Press one for previous message. How spooky is that? <laughs> How spooky is that? That's pretty... Oh, God. That's so fucking spooky. So we hear that and we're all, like, freaked out. And then so we... Re- so we... We... It's late at night and it's kind of quiet. So we're like, we'll just walk around the hotel. And the walls are real thin. So if someone is in a bathroom screaming, we'll just hear them in the hallway probably. So me and Zach and Doug are walking around first the main building, up and down the hallways, real quietly, just sort of listening. And there's nothing. Listening. Listening against every wall. And then we hear different things. Like in one room, there's like just a noise. And then I'm like, yeah, that's a that's a white noise machine, guys. Everyone's like, what's that thing in room one? And I'm like... That's a white noise machine. They sleep with white noise. And then we go to the Purcell house, the annex building. And um, I walk up and down the hallways, listening. And it's like, we can't find anything. And it's just nothing. And then I ask the people in the parking lot, did you hear anyone screaming? And I'm like, we got these scary voicemails. And the guy is like, dude, that's the ghost. And then me and Doug are standing there and the guy starts telling us the story of like, yeah, bro, I had a ghost at my house because, because it's on Nisian territory, you know? That's the natives. That's the natives that were in this area. And I don't know what to do about that. Because he's a guest and I have to be nice. And that's the, really the thing. The reason I act like someone who believes in ghosts here is because I'm in customer service mode. So we look for the ghost. And then I finally figure out the code to the host, the restaurant host stand voicemail. And I get into that voicemail and I find a third voicemail. But first, let me play this one again. Let me just, let's just listen to this spooky voicemail one more time. You have no new messages and four old messages. Press star to play. Press nine for... Press zero for next message. I'm stuck in a bathroom! I need help! Press zero for next message. Press one for previous message. God, that second one where he screams, that second one is so scary. But then I, I found a third message in the, at the host stand, and it's like the person doing it again and screaming and stuff, but there's just all these people laughing in the background. So with that third message, it's clear that the whole thing is a prank call. <laughs> but it's really scary, and it's... It's like, it's making, it, it, it's scary enough that it's like, I actually feel like I believe that there's a ghost, which is so interesting and powerful and clear how self-replicating and how self-fulfilling these things are. Because the fact that people think it's a haunted, like the fact that we're on like ghost hunters, there's a TV show called Ghost Hunters and they made an episode about the hotel. The fact that everyone in town knows that it's a haunted hotel makes it so that the human brain is spongy enough that everyone just constantly is having ghost experiences in there. 
And then also people will prank call it and pretend to be the ghost. And people will do a good job prank calling it because those are some extremely well-crafted prank calls. Because <laughs> those prank calls are full-on terrifying. Yeah. And that's all I got to say about it. Oh, God. Hold on. I need something to open this next water with. This next water here is Boylan. B-O-Y-L-A-N. Boylan Bottling Company. Lemon Seltzer. Now, I bought this and... It's interesting because this brings me back to my, when I first moved to America, my first restaurant job, I didn't have a lot of money. And at the restaurant, we had Boylan brand sodas. And it was like, you work there so you can get free soda, the soda from the soda gun. But it's like, I don't drink that shit. That shit's gross. Like poorly carbonated Coca-Cola that's calibrated wrong in a, in a, in a soda gun so that it's like, the syrup level is never right. Like soda from a gun or a fountain is always terrible. And then we also had bottled glass bottle fancy soda. And I just remember thinking about it as this thing that I, it's interesting with things that we live life feeling like we can't afford. And then later in life, things change and we feel like we can afford them. And now we look back on them and they just feel different. Like, this is a thing like that, where now I feel like I have a little bit more money, so now it doesn't feel like, like, now I feel like I could buy as many of these as I would fucking want. Now, the thing is, I don't want to be drinking soda all the time, so it's not like I'm running out there to buy any of these, but but I used to think of these as so fancy. It's I had the same thing with Red Bull, where like when I was a kid... When I was like a teenager, they came out with Red Bull and Red Bulls weren't, were kind of expensive and I didn't have a lot of, like I was in school, you know, I didn't have a lot of money. So I remember just always feeling like, man, I wish I was rich so I could drink Red Bull all the time because ain't nothing tastes better than Red Bull. And then, you know, fast forward 10 years and then now I could drink Red Bull every day and, and. And honestly, I drink Red Bull a lot. I drink sugar-free Red Bulls every every once in a while. Guac at Chipotle is another thing. That's something that I like. See all these memes. That, I, I, there are memes about the Guac at Chipotle where it's like people are like, I don't like. They try to quantify how the rich they want to get by the end of by the you know when they grow up, and they say that. I just want to be so rich that I can ask for guac at Chipotle every single time without feeling worried at all about that. And that's a very specific level of rich because that's not particularly rich. <laughs> like that's not a homeowner. But I remember feeling like guac at Chipotle was something where I was like, ooh, I can't do that every time because I won't, I won't have enough money for that. And then now I could probably do guac every time, you know, because it's only a, it's only $2. But yeah, okay, whatever. Anyway, Boylan. Boylan Bottling Company. This is lemon seltzer. This is a lemon lime episode. Oh, fuck. Our third drink is going to be a lemon lime. This whole thing, wow, that's light. Wow. 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 You know, I mean, this is a sparkling water podcast, so we've had a lot of very, very light flavors. Like, LaCroix is famously light in the flavor department. And we've had some things that are lighter than... LaCroix, but I would say that this is the most, this, <laughs> this is almost undiscernible lemon. Like, I am, 
I can't smell any lemon. And flavor-wise, it's like, wow. It's almost just that there's an acidity from the carbonation, and that acidity has just been modulated a tiny bit in the direction of lemon. But you don't even, like, if you didn't tell me it was lemon, I would just think that the carbonation is a little bit off. Like, the carbonation is a little bit extra acidic or something. That's the least flavored water I've ever had. Wow. All right. Yeah, I mean, that's not very good. That's a 6 out of 10. But it gets an award for something else. All right, next topic. Um, I am... Last couple of episodes, I've been talking about relationships a little bit and how I'm... Excuse me. Thinking about relationships and... I don't know, just trying to figure out what my problem is and... My problem is definitely something. Part of my problem, it feels like, is that I'm not good at communicating and I'm not good at communicating what, um, what my needs are and like things that annoy me about a romantic partner. And then instead of communicating it, it just festers into something where I just start to resent them. And then I just break up with them instead of working on the relationship, instead of communicating and having and giving them an opportunity to fix something. And then, like, when I'm thinking about that and I think back on past relationships and how I've done that every time and that's a pattern, the one exception is, like, my ex-wife, where we commute, like, the problem there was too much complaining, which is the opposite. I would blame her for everything and I would complain about everything. Like, with her, I felt like I could say what I thought was the problem. And I was probably, that meant that I was overdoing it and I was I don't know talking about shit that wasn't real you know I was making shit up I was delusional she was it wasn't everything wasn't her fault But you have to f- find some sort of thing in the middle there where you're connected to reality so you know you're saying real things about what's a p- what a problem is that your partner could work on. But you're not trying to tear her down. But you're giving her an opportunity to work on something. There's something there, some in-between thing. But yeah, what I was going to say about it is that for some reason thinking about that, I found myself Googling my ex-wife for the first time. Like we broke up, we separated like two and a half years ago, maybe at least probably coming up on three years. And for those three years, I haven't done that. Like I haven't. There was a time or two when I tried to check her Instagram and she had blocked my Instagram and, and I just gave up. And I managed, I managed pretty good to not go down that hole where you like stay up in the middle of the, when you're in the middle of the night, you're Googling your ex, you know. But I, I did that. I've been doing that recently. And <clears throat> the fascinating thing that I found is that In the beginning, I thought she had blocked me on stuff, and that's why I couldn't find her. But then I've realized that, or what I'm realizing now is, and, and I could be wrong, but I think she's like scrubbed her entire existence off the internet, which is very interesting, actually, because it leaves me with nothing, and that's a very old fashioned feeling. Like, normally, in the year of our Lord 2022, if you succumb to your weaker emotions and you want to see what's going on with my ex, like what city do they live in? What do they do for a living? 
what picture have they put on the internet in the last three years? Normally, you can get some of that information, at least some of it. But there's nothing on her. You know? Because it is my, I'm under the impression that if you, if you go on Instagram or Facebook using a completely new sort of, you just go on there from a new computer with a new account and you try to look for her and she's not there, then that means she's not there. Just fascinating. Like we were, we always had a little bit of a contentious relationship with technology and the internet where social media, you know, like we always felt like social media is probably rotting our brains out. So we shouldn't be on social media too much, but she really took herself off of the internet. Which, in a way, makes me worried. Because that could mean that she's not doing well. But logically, if it was anyone else, if it was any average person or someone I didn't know, I'd be like, oh, they're not on the internet. That probably means that you're doing be better than average. Because the internet, this social media is probably bad for our brains. So just not existing on the internet is probably just good for you. But her, I just know that she's such a deeply troubled young lady. Such a deeply, deeply like <clears throat> unhappy person. And I say that not spitefully. I say that with sadness. And I say that with sadness because the more time that passed and stuff and the more I've dated other women and stuff, I've realized that, yeah, because the one thing I did find when I Googled her was I found her blog from before I met her. She had a blog when I met her, but she'd only posted five blog posts and after I met her, she never posted again. And that blog still exists. And so I read these blog posts from like the months before I met her. And the thing about it, bro, is that in a way that woman is perfect for me. Like just her mix of interests and her quirky way her mind works is like so similar to mine. She's like, oh God, feels bad to say this, but like, She's like smart and she's like nerdy and, and she would just write these blog posts that were all about like linguistics and learning Chinese and, and what it feels like to misunderstand it. Like there's one blog post about what it feels like to misunderstand a Chinese character and to spend like a whole day trying to understand a Chinese character that's handwritten on an ancient document. And it's like, that's just so specific and nerdy and something that I, like so much of my novel is just about burrowing down on one character and it's just such a like there's such boringness to it that's so colorful to me and that I find it I find it so attractive and it's like just comparing that to the compromises that I have to do more recently of what I'm interested in and how much of an interest overlap I have to accept and be like okay with and like now if there's like a 25% interest overlap I'm like oh I have quite a few things in common with this person but back then my expectation was totally different and I god this feels like a very very tough and painful thing to admit but like Why does this feel tough and painful to admit? It feels tough and painful to admit because part of it is is that I'm insulting the women I've been dating more recently. But I don't mean that they are worse in any objective sense. I just mean that compatibility-wise, like I used to date women that were so incredibly compatible. And then now I have to accept something where it's like in every respect I'm just less into it <clears throat> god that's hard to admit
Hmm. And that's an age-old thing and feeling. And that's that feeling of like, you know, for some reason it's more of a feeling that women express more than men. You know? Classically, there's like story, there's like TV dramas with women in New York that are like, oh, where are all the, where are there no good dudes? Like, why can't I find a good man? All these guys are so flawed. Which is a thing, you say that and you're insulting everyone you've dated recently. But that's how we feel sometimes. And, um, yeah. And the thing is that, um, my ex-wife has reached out to me once or twice in the recent past and in the not so recent past and just wanted to talk to me and stuff and, and she has made me, without saying it, she has made me feel like if I wanted to get back together with her, I could. And then there's this thing that, like, the thing that makes me not get back together with her is the thing which is what I was going to bring up, which is, like, the thing about her more than anything is just that she's just one of the unhappiest people I've ever met, which is so sad. It's sad for her and it's sad for me because if it wasn't for that, I'd probably call her right now, you know? Oh, God. It's just weird. Like, I don't know what city she lives in. I don't know what she does for a living. I just know the last stuff I know about her is I know that she was living in Chicago and she was working for this one auction house. And they're on the website of the auction house. Her name is associated with a couple of things there. But they're all from a long time ago, so I have to assume that she doesn't work there anymore. And it's just crazy for some high-powered professional lady to have a career and to have that career spawn absolutely zero content on the internet. Like, how is it that whatever she's doing now isn't creating any hits on Google with her name? <clears throat> So part of me is just worried that she's just like receded. Like maybe she isn't working. Maybe she's not doing anything. And then that, what I was thinking about about this is like, it raises this separate question of like, when you have an ex and you have a love-hate relationship with them and maybe you have a lot of negative emotions towards them and they really hurt you and there's a lot of difficult stuff, like... Where are you at with that, ultimately? Do you want them to be successful, or do you want them to not be successful? Like, do you want your ex to be successful? I think that says a lot about us. The true answer to that question probably says a lot about you as an individual. And I am really of two minds when it comes to that, because it could really hurt my feelings. If she's super successful and she... she she's super successful, she really could rub that in my face and that really could make me feel really bad. It's something I could be really sensitive about. But then there's also... I don't want her to be unhappy. I don't want her to be doing bad. But like last spring she did, a year ago she did reach out to me and was just like, do you want to just talk on phone once and just check in? And I said, I want to do it if we can do it on the podcast. And she said, thanks, but no thanks. And then I said, thanks, but no thanks. And I think I'm going to adjust that. I'm going to modify that a little bit and maybe reach out to her and be like, I would like to just talk to you. Because I just want to know how she's doing. And I think I mean that in a truly peaceful sense, in a truly curious, I mean, it's peaceful until it's not. 
it's peaceful until I get one piece of information and then I have a value judgment about that piece of information. If she's doing good, I'll be jealous. If she's doing bad, I'll be sad. You know, whatever it is, I'll find a negative way to deal with it probably. Do I want her to succeed or do I want her to fail? So I'm going to probably reach out to her in the next couple of days and and what do I want? Do I want her to tell me that she's doing good or do I want her to tell me that she's doing bad? I mean, what I really want is for her to tell me something that's convincing, where she describes how she has solved all of her problems and she's now thriving and she wants to get back together with me. That's so funny. That's what I actually want. But it's like... But as I say that, it's also true that I... I cannot conceptualize anything that any way for her to prove because her saying that she's doing great is, is, is what she says. But then when you, if you're a fly on the wall in her apartment for a week, you'll see that there's a lot of, there's a lot of crying until you're dry heaving, you know, there's a lot of crying until you can barely breathe anymore. There's a lot of not getting out of bed, and then right as you're getting out of bed, you just start bawling instead, and then you're just shaking. There's a lot of crying so hard that you're unresponsive, you know. And that's not doing good. That's what it means to not be doing good. God, that makes me sad. That's the one thing I have to remind myself of because every so many things of that relationship were so good. <clears throat> and then Yeah. There was no way for me to be in an apartment with someone that's that sad and not be sad myself. That was ultimately the problem. Such a downer, huh? Okay, let's maybe we do another water or something. Lemon Lime Twister. I talked about Bubbler last episode because we were doing Rebel, where they removed the E. They removed the second E in the word Rebel and replaced it with a B. And here in Bubbler, they removed the E and replaced it with an apostrophe. Great. Great job, guys. Lemon Lime Twister. Yep, that's a 1 out of 10. Not even going to have a second sip. Not even going to say anything else about it. <clears throat> I've been rip-roaring through this show Succession because my friend Sam told me to watch it. And then after I watched the season and a half, I was like, okay, so can we talk about the show that you told me to watch? And she's like, oh, yeah, I only watched two episodes. What's more annoying than that? When someone recommends something to you and then they haven't watched it themselves. So like you do the, you do them this favor of watching it so that you can have a conversation about it. And then it turns out that you can't even have a conversation about it. Hey, Sam, that's annoying as fuck. <laughs> Fucking Sam. Oh God. So yeah, it's a show where like, um, it's, you got to appreciate how the name of the show is completely literal, and that is just the topic. The topic is succession. The show is called Succession, and it's about who will take over the big company. And it's like a show about the biggest company in the world. It's a fictional company, and it's a show about who will take over. And for season, season after season, it's just a family, and they just keep arguing about who's going to take over. And somehow it has this stage theater quality to it of just – it's just people talking, but they keep it interesting in, in the same way that people on a stage can keep it interesting without a bunch of explosions of CGI or stuff, but just having people talking. And, and that can be pretty cool. But the one storyline that I really appreciate, the one storyline that I find the most interesting is like, well, one, one, one funny thing about the show is that everyone on the show looks like a child actor that looks like the grown-up version of a child actor that you kind of recognize, but it's not them. 
So the bigger, the older brother, it's like, you, you're like, isn't that Ferris Bueller? But now he's 80 years old. And then you think about it one more time, and it's actually Ferris Bueller's best friend who you don't know who it is, and now he's grown up, and you just have to re- recognize him. So everyone is like a faded version of a memory of a dream of a thing you can't remember. It's how everyone, like, no one looks like a new person and no one looks like someone you know who they are. Everyone is in the borderlands in between. Everyone on the show. Like, the the sister, she looks like Emma Stone, but then she also looks like maybe from Arrested Development, but she's neither. And you don't know who she is. And then the character that I was going to mention, he looks like Macaulay Culkin because he's a grown-up version of Macaulay Culkin. But it's actually Macaulay Culkin's. And Macaulay Culkin already is like this weird version of someone you recognize as a kid. But it's actually not Macaulay Culkin. It's Macaulay Culkin's brother. So just like every other character, the actor is like two steps removed from something you recognize. So it's Kieran McCulkin, which is the brother. So it's like an old, decrepit, weird version of someone you remember the child version of. Anyway, so the youngest brother, played by a Culkin, the the best storyline is with him, and it's it's just this very funny. It's so, it's something I truly appreciate because it's a storyline where they're showing me something that's different from how I am, and I don't relate to it at all. But I understand it, and it actually seems believable. It's like a psychological model that I actually find believable, and it's completely alien to me. So in the in the story, it's like the guy is – they're all rich. So because he's rich, even though he's like weird looking and has bad posture, he still has this ultra-hot girlfriend. But the thing is that he's never had sex with his girlfriend because he can't have sex with her because he's so screwed up with so many daddy and mommy issues that he can't just have normal sex. And they tried to have sex once, but he needed her to act like a dead body so that it was wrong, so that he could get hard. But the the the, the storyline that's the best with that is that sometimes his girlfriend tries to have sex with him and he can't do it. And their secret is that they've never had sex. And then right afterwards, he'll go to his dad's business partner basically who's his old lady he is maybe in his 40s and the old lady is in her 70s and this old lady will insult him and then he'll lean into that and start flirting with her while she's insulting him and then she'll understand what he's doing and she'll like go in the bathroom right now and then he'll go in the bathroom and he'll masturbate and she'll like say mean things to him through the bathroom door. And it's like so forbidden because she's old and he's, she's a friend of his dad. And there are many reasons why it's like forbidden to, to be attracted by that. But it's like they do this like convincing thing where it's actually kind of hot. And it's like a completely different psycho, psychosexual model than my make mental makeup. But I just find it completely convincing. Like I find it completely believable that some people are like that guy. And it's like so fucking weird, but also believable, <clears throat> which is an extremely respectable feat to manage to portray something that's super weird and super believable. Yeah. But other than that storyline, it's like the show is I'm not really recommending the show, but but that thing is pretty cool. That thing is pretty cool. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe there's... I was trying to think about this thing that I wanted to talk about, but I don't exactly know how to talk about it. But it's something about... <clears throat> new topic. Something about how I'm starting to feel like some of these people in America who believe in crazy things, maybe it's not so much a problem of facts and stuff. These people who believe in all these conspiracy theories, maybe it's more a problem of we're just in a transitionary period where we lost all these like ideals. 
like all the Mad Men era ideals of what you could believe in as a man. <clears throat> now that those ideals aren't cool anymore, it's not cool to be a Mad Men era man. Now people are just looking for something new, so they just end up in these weird, weird corners of the internet where they, I don't know. This is an unformed thought. Maybe the reason people believe that Hunter Biden is the actual president and that he's a pedophile and there are Satanist pedophiles that control everything. Maybe it's because they're just looking for something to believe in. Yeah. Like that old conversation about ISIS, the book Black Flag, about how like the reason people who grew up in the UK travel to ISIS territory and join ISIS is because we really, really need to feel something strongly and we need to really believe in something. And modern, especially postmodern society really is only offering us like a peaceful middle class life does not have enough romance and poetry in it. And it doesn't have enough. Like we need drama. It's something about how we were set up to, we were set up to have and believe and be propelled forward by drama and we just need it. And the problem is that in the modern society, the good guys, they don't have a very dramatic or poetic answer. Like to just say, hey, we should all try to just set up a model where we have healthcare for everyone and we like, you know, are good at diplomacy and we avoid war and we take care of everyone in society and and you pay your taxes and and you have upward mobility so your kids can sort of like go to school and decide to do whatever they want professionally and then they will have a job and and they can buy a house with the wages that they get from that job like to have that be the ideal that we're all striving for like it's just not poetic or interesting enough it's just not enough And then ISIS, on the other hand, is like, look, there's a holy war going on. People out here trying to convince you to fucking pay your taxes, bro. And take care of poor people and, like, just go to work and stuff. And just, like, watch TV. And maybe buy a 3D printer and, like, have a hobby and go, like, fucking go to a climbing gym. Like, all modern society has to offer you is that maybe you go on a hike or you go to your get a membership at a climbing gym and you buy some climbing shoes, bro. You get like a bicycle, like an off-road bicycle and you go biking in the mountains. Maybe you go to Asia for a week. Like that's the most interesting thing postmodern society can offer you. And then on the internet, there are these people that say like, look, dude, there's this crazy good versus evil fight going on where these satanic pedophiles actually run the world. And Barack Obama is a pedophile and Michelle Obama is a man. And there's this enormous dramatic story going on. And the truth is just not dramatic enough for all those people that need something dramatic. And the need for drama will make some people woke and it will make some people QAnon and it will make some people ISIS-y. It will make some people ISIS fighters. Oh. I think that's the question that interests me more than anything. And I think that's what I want my next novel to be about. What can we come up with that's dramatic, that's good? Because all of those things are kind of destructive. 
to be like really frothing at the mouth woke, even that, like that's the most harmless one. And that's the one, like I I have more in common with someone who's too woke than someone who's too QAnon and too ISIS. But even the woke one is like, even that is not that great. I don't know. And I'm hearing a lot of conversations about how maybe Russia invading Ukraine can be a cultural wake-up call where the the culture wars in Western societies could take the back seat and we could just get back to understanding that the real question is like can we get liberal democracy and just like functioning representative democracy and just freedom and like peaceful a sort of peaceful world world order can we get that to be the main thing that we focus on i don't know i think i have to give up on this episode this is a very half formed thought but i love you guys and thanks for listening yeah Thanks for listening.